Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Quick note about the foundation. We've started on our uh, massive literature review to look for every possible treatment for anxiety and depression and related conditions. Uh, To find out more about the effort, go to FindingGeniusFoundation.org. Quick note that the main premise is that if you suffer from these conditions or know someone that does, you go to a practitioner, they may know two or 3% of all possible treatments. What if we could go through thousands of sources, articles, interviews, books, papers, et cetera, and find 20% of all possible treatments? Uh, If we can, I believe that would be a big time home run. That's why I encourage you to go to FindingGeniusFoundation.org to check out the effort. So today I have two guests. Uh, the first one will be uh, veterinarian Karen Shaw Becker, and the other one is Rodney Habib. He's a TEDx speaker and author. Uh, he's one of the most influential pet health leaders in the world, also a filmmaker. So we're going to talk about uh, what's called the forever dog, the surprising new science to help your dog live longer, healthier, and happier, I would guess, as well. So both of you, thanks for coming. Well, thanks so much for having us. Yeah, we're happy to be here. Yeah, well, tell me about a bit about each of your backgrounds and then how did it lead to this current effort on the forever dog and what is it? Well, I guess for me, you could say um, I have a huge passion for citizen science, Richard. I got my first pet about 10 years ago, and it really just, uh, actually, almost 15 years ago, I should say. And it uh, it was probably the most incredible experience of my life being a first-time dog owner. And uh, it literally drove me to want to delve into research and to science and try to figure out how to keep my dog with me as long as possible. And from there, I was, uh, you could say, I, I, I was able to start content creating, which brought on a, a whole big audience that had interest in sort of the same interests that I had, which was pretty cool. And uh, fate had it. I got to partner with the uh, most followed veterinarian in the entire world. And um, today we create content 
in hopes to inspire health and longevity in uh, millions of pet parents around the world. And for me, I'm a proactive wellness veterinarian, so I my entire, I guess, mode of practice or my approach to medicine is trying to prevent disease from occurring. So I set up my animal hospital that way in 1999, and I, I partner with my clients to, to not have to go through the heartbreak of disease and degeneration by preventing, hopefully to the best of our ability, the body from breaking. And so when I met Rodney and he found that he was he is really obsessed with the oldest dogs in the world and why are they so old and how do they get to be so old and what their owners did and didn't do, I found that pretty intriguing. And I'm also, of course, obsessed with what we can do as guardians or owners to reduce disease potential. So we decided to collaborate on this book, which is basically talking to the older, to the owners of the oldest dogs around the world, and then talking to the top longevity scientists and health and wellness experts around the world, both in the human medicine and in veterinary medicine, and having those experts reverse engineer these ancient, healthy, long-lived dogs. And then we put all that information together in a book called The Forever Dog. It's been a really fantastic mm. experience. Yeah, that's really cool. I don't want to give away, obviously, the whole book, but what are some stories maybe that didn't make it into the book mm. that you think mm-hmm. you know were very exciting that you could talk about? So, so many stories didn't make it into the book. In yeah. fact, we're, we we were at like 550 pages and HarperCollins <laughs> was like, okay, Karen, you got to hack out at least 200 pages. <laughs> well, and the citations alone, my gosh, were, I don't know, I, I think we had at least over 300, easily over 300 citations and, hmm. and things that, uh, studies that we wanted to add in there, many, many studies that yeah. never had the opportunity to be, get added. So, you know, it's like when you're putting together the first book and you want it to be a blueprint on how to raise the oldest lived dogs in the world. My gosh, it almost seems like it could be endless, Richard. And especially like when you live in PubMed and every, what, 60 seconds a new study is published and you're like, oh, this one would be so awesome yeah. to add. You know, yeah. you have to kind of hold back from it. So so many things didn't get get added. But I think, you know, just I think for me, we talked to some of the top microbiologists around the world and some really cool studies. I just saw this morning that uh, a new article was published in Nature that we actually talked to some of those scientists where they did microbiome transplants from old mice with old brains and those mice were in cognitive decline. And they did a microbiome transplant of younger mice with you know, fertile, vibrant brains. And the older mice that received the microbiome transplant, they reverse age just from having their microbiome shifted. Like that's a super cool study. We touched on it in the book, but we didn't dive into it. So there's so many, there's so many studies. That but didn't but that being said, but that being said, there's so much that's in the book. I've seen Wired Magazine do this where they'll take a concept and they'll ask like, you know, they'll explain it to a kindergartner and then a you know, a little bit older student than a high school student than a college student than a grad student, you know, than a professional. We don't need to do all those levels. But if, you know, someone was like seven years old and they said, what's the book about? What would you say? And then like, you know, then we'll go at it, go at it from a, an adult's perspective. If you don't mind, just those two perspectives. Yeah. If, you, if you would sum it up for like a seven-year-old that asked you what it's about, what, what would you learn? You know, that's fa- it's, it's awesome that you asked that question because that's exactly what we asked the world's top geneticists and longevity scientists in the world. If you could explain it to a five-year-old, how would you explain it? This book, if I was to sit with a five-year-old, I would say that this is a how-to guide to get your dog to live as long as possible. It's called the forever dog because we want our dogs to live with us forever. So if I had to, if you could take every tip from every top longevity scientist in the world and break it down into the most layman explanation possible, that would be that to a five-year-old. 
this book is a is a recipe on how to create the longest lived dog in the world. Yeah, and I would say kind of one tier up from that, it would be let's let's just talk about like high school level. We would say, you know, there are things in the we know that health is divided and wellness, the ability to stay a resilient and a thriving body is partially dictated on genetics, your DNA, and it's partially dictated by the environment. But what we do know is the environment plays a larger role in most cases than genetics. And then one step up from that, I would say that we know now in science that there are epigenetic triggers, there, they, that what surrounds our genome has a dramatic impact on our mitochondria's ability to regenerate, on autophagy, on AMPK and mTOR regulation, and that the exact same influences that affect humans in terms of disease degeneration and the ability to recover from injury are affecting our dogs at the, in the exact same capacity. So the cool thing about dogs is that they are literally translational role models for the path of humans and why humans are maybe having degenerative issues and are de struggling in maintaining well-being and health, those exact same issues are affecting our dogs. So what, um, in the dog world, what's a, a common age that they live to right now and what's an old one considered? How much of a difference is there? Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Okay. So you know, this is such an awesome question, right? So as a, when, I, when I got my first dog, that was the ultimate question. How long could I get my dog to live for? Like what was possible? Now, when you look at the data and you look at the research, um, it's not very promising. In fact, you could go back as far as the late 1800s and see that there really hasn't been much change in lifespan. I know this because I have a huge fascination. I'm a junkie with um, old magazines and old manuals that used to be put out by James Spratt, the inventor of pet food. And even back then in those books, Richard, they would talk about dogs living anywhere between, let's say, like 9 to 12 years old. And if you were looking to today's dog, the average lifespan, a study uh, that came out of the United Kingdom, done on over 400,000 dogs, a survey, showed that these dogs typically live to be around 11 years old. What's scary is if you look at the decade past, they actually lived a little bit longer. There was an 11% reduction in lifespan. So it's not like we're moving the dial any. However, that being said, one of our biggest fascinations, of course, was sitting down with the pet parents who've raised extraordinarily long-lived pets. And what we found was that dogs can actually live into their early 20s, mid-20s. In fact, we interviewed Brian McLaren from Australia who raised maybe potentially the longest-lived dog of all time or recorded that we know of that lived to the ripe old age of 30. So it doesn't seem as a pet parent when your dog lives to be like 11 or 12, the most common question ever asked uh, in any dog park, you're walking your dog, somebody's walking their dog. The first usually question when people see each other is, oh, how old's your dog? To have your dog live to be 12 seems like robbery, to be honest with you. Yeah. 
Yeah, for larger breeds, I guess. Yeah. I mean, well, how much of a difference did you see between larger and smaller breeds? There definitely is a difference between larger and smaller breeds, and that was one of the that was one of the questions that we wanted our experts to answer. Certainly, sadly, larger dogs die younger, but that is that is a factor that doesn't necessarily mimic the rest of the animal kingdom. Sometimes, larger animals, let's say elephants, uh, do live substantially longer than smaller animals. Let's say mice and rats uh, in the animal kingdom may have a lifespan of a year or less, but dogs don't follow that. And we actually did some research as as to why. And insulin-like growth factor, IGF, was actually came to light. Yeah, it was, it was really interesting when we sat down with longevity scientists and there's in, in Washington, Seattle right now, I know that they're doing a lot of longevity work, especially on what's called mTOR, the mammalian target of rapamycin. Matt Caberline and the team over there, uh, they're trying to suppress mTOR to extend lifespan. And already it's pretty promising. They're, they're finding that, you know, with these drugs that they can create, which in hopes of, of spreading over into the human world, they're already seeing a 30% increase in longevity by just uh, administrating a pharmaceutical that can suppress mTOR. So what we found was, and what these scientists hypothesize, is that, of course, the larger the dog, the more IGF-1 receptors that dog would have. Therefore, you'd be dividing cells faster, and therefore, larger dogs typically don't live as long as smaller dogs. Mm -hmm. The other thing that we did was we got to sit down with uh, Dr. Kimberly Greer from Texas, who also was an expert. I mean, she she pro- she was the inspiration, uh, Richard, for my second TED Talk. And those scientists sat down and they wanted to break down some of the key factors when it came to longevity. And of course, insulin and IGF-1 was a big factor. But so many other factors came into play, like stress, right? Caloric restriction, something that's so taboo and so talked about today in the pet space. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Yeah, there there are several other issues in addition to size that absolutely impact lifespan. And that was something that every researcher told us that indeed, you know, dogs may be one of those outliers that bigger dogs die younger. But the truth is those environmental variables that all dogs are exposed to absolutely play into health well-being and as well as health span which is, you know, how many times a dog is going to the vet each year, as well as lifespan, how many days they're on this earth. And every researcher we talked to said the same thing, that we need to be thinking about the environmental factors. The Broad Institute lists, you know, the radiation, diet, nutrition, exposure to toxins as the big heavy hitters that modulate or change that can up or down regulate our DNA in a good and bad fashion. So yeah, size matters, but so do all the environmental factors that up and down regulate our dog's DNA. And you know what's really interesting? Because smaller dogs, the assumption is less IGF-1 receptors, smaller dogs typically, Richard, don't get as much cancer as larger dogs, which is also very fascinating. I know there's been research done. Oh gosh, it, it the name goes by me, but I know there, and I know I don't know if it's PC to say like the little tribe of, of people that were researched in South Africa. And what they found down there was they were protected for some reason from specific cancers. And when they analyzed them, they found that there was a defect on their cells for those IGF-1 receptors, which protected them from cancer. So it's it's really fascinating research when you want to get into it. And of course, you know, I'm sure a lot of scientists out there would be like slamming their heads on the table in a lay type of explanation, but um, super fascinating science. Small dogs have their own set of consequences. For instance, they're 
lower to the ground. Of course, all dogs are naked and fuzzy, but environmental pollution, including the chemicals in our home, many dogs have a, a, a much higher level of body burden of chemicals compared to even small kids because of their location in the home. And that was something that we found really interesting. The environmental working group found that dogs have significantly higher levels of environmental chemicals from the home in their bloodstreams compared to kids and small dogs and actually cats had the highest because they were the smallest teacup and small breed dogs next and then larger dogs still in an unbelievable body burden of chemicals but less than smaller dogs so it appears to be from our research that different sizes and different breeds of dogs actually have different physiologic and environmental burdens depending on their size but also their breed because that's another piece where genetics plays into overall well-being and cancer risk yeah that's actually exactly what i was going to ask you you know i'm picturing the dog snuffling near the ground and you know in someone's house if there are this carpet the dog's laying on the carpet it's sniffing the carpet it may be licking things off the carpet or the floor you know things fall down any chemicals or aerosols hairsprays whatever all this yep. stuff I, I just imagine would drift down and onto surfaces and the dogs and cats and all that that are near their surfaces constantly, thats it makes sense why they would pick more of that stuff up. Yeah, and long chemicals. Well, and it's, well I mean, it's I know that the uh, New York Department of Health did a study a few years back, and they found that there was 21 different phthalates, at least, circulating in the blood of dogs and cats. Recent study that just was published was showing, now, they know, what we know is they're trying to use our pets, like, let's say, dogs and cats as basically biological markers of, of, of home toxins. I mean, literally the dog and the cat spend the most time in our homes more than us, right? We go out, we go to work, we go to restaurants. However, our pets are in the house the most. And so studies are suggesting that, listen, if you want to really find out if somebody's home is toxic or not, just te te you know, test their pet. I know one of the key things that they're finding is now, especially during this pandemic, where more people are spending more time at home um, the homes are becoming more toxic than ever, right? I, one, I think one of, the one of the things that was tested, which was really interesting, was they found the chemical that's produced from frying foods at home. Um, and then these animals are inhaling it. These chemicals are circulating in the blood at high rates, something that no one would ever think about. Uh, VOCs in your home, uh, volatile organic compounds, things like uh, air fresheners or scented candles at home, right? Because we're all sitting in the house. I'm sure homes aren't are smelling stinkier than plug ever with all these yeah, people. Everybody plugins. using plug-ins and air fresheners and spraying things. They're finding these, uh, as Dr. Karen Becker alluded to earlier, the EWG, which found 48 out of 70 different industrial cleaners and chemicals in our pet's blood. So it's, it's pretty scary now when we look at things, uh, Richard, how we don't realize how toxic our homes are becoming and how this is uh, creating such a burden on our pets' bodies. But it's interesting because pets, I think, have, a, have two more complicating factors. Then pets go outside and, you know, they walk through treated grass. We, we did a shocking interview where we learned that actually a dog's risk of lymphoma is increased by 70% with professionally applied lawn chemicals. So there's dramatic environmental risk outside. And even though, of course, you know, 
those little signs that they put in our grass that says, don't walk on this grass. It has been treated, so you need to stay off of it 48 hours. Dogs can't read, and dogs do walk on chemically treated surfaces, and they don't shower every day. So they have this bioaccumulation of environmental chemicals. And then, of course, they, they do lick themselves. So not only are they not rinsing the chemicals off, but their, their exposure is much higher. But then they have veterinary exposure as well. And what do I mean by that? When you and I get into the woods, we don't, we may put, you know, mosquito spray on us, but then we come home and take a shower and our, our dogs are going to the veterinarians and oftentimes are recommended that we have a flea and tick pesticide applied to their bodies every month. And when you read the insert of the flea and tick chemicals, it says if you get any on your human skin to call poison control, but it's totally safe for dogs and cats. And we're not saying that these chemicals aren't necessary. We know that dogs and cats do need flea and tick control, but it's the every month year-round exposure without a means of necessarily helping their bodies detoxify where you can have this overwhelming chemical exposure that ultimately leads to a change in their DNA and potentially disease midlife when, when people aren't even aware that these environmental factors exist. Well, I don't want to demonize dogs. It's not their fault at all. But exactly. I'm also imagining, again, the dog laying on things, licking things, et cetera. But the chemicals would stay on their body as well, not just in it. And then kids petting the dogs, people petting them, eating, etc. Um, I would think also dogs, I don't know if there's studies on this, but dogs probably bring the chemicals that are on the carpets and all over the place more back, I mean, back into contact with the people in the house too. So I think people that have dogs that have a higher body burden would also have a higher body burden themselves than people that don't have pets. There's actually 1,000% research on that. Um, one of the studies that was done that they found that 76% of dogs tested have lawn chemicals in their urine following home lawn care. What's even scarier, over 50% of dogs had these lawn chemicals in their in their urine whose owners did not spray their lawn. Because, of course, you're out, you're walking on golf courses. When Sometimes when you walk your dog, you're walking them on, on your neighbor's lawns. Well, it's not, maybe you're not spraying your lawn. And there's also a 50-foot drag. So if your neighbor sprays his lawn. And now not only are they engulfed in this, but researchers found that these dogs are bringing them into our homes. And they're finding these lawn chemicals in children because, of course, the dog lays on the bed. You're snuggling with your dog, as you should be. Um, it's not your dog's fault that he's he's a Swiffer and he's picking all this up and or your cat. And yes, it's being transferred back to the human. So there are studies that have showed that. And um, it's a really big problem. I mean, that's why if you <laughs> it's pretty an educated pet parent. I can usually tell when I drive when I drive by their lawn because you could tell that they got that shaggy old lawn. Lots of um, dandelions. Lots of dandelions, <laughs> but lots of birds are usually in their yard pecking, getting the worms and so on and so forth. And those like pristine green lawns usually nine times out of 10, there, there's not a pet there, or at least we hope there's no pet living in there. Tell me one or two stories that really jump out at you that just, you know, as you went on this journey, they either shocked you or delighted you or surprised you or just like, what are some of the most surprising things that you learned on this journey? So for me, the biggest thing is the impact of stress. I had no idea that if you are, somebody who's high wired, you are constantly stressed out, anxiety and or depression to the max. You know, that person that loses their email by accident and then flips out that you can impact your dog with your stress level. So there was a study that was done in Sweden uh, just recently by Dr. Lena Roth at uh, Linköping University of Sweden, where they found that 
your dog will synchronize to your stress levels, which I had no idea could be done. So, you know, you, one sees their dog who's happy, go lucky. You'd say to yourself, ah, you know what? I, maybe I'm having a miserable day, but little does that person know that they can impact their dog. In fact, we flew to Italy. We were sat with Dr. Biagio Daniello and his team. They were able to show that not only your stress, but they did a study where they took a swab of people who were angry and a people who, who were happy and they put them in these containers and they literally had a dog walk up and smell it. And within three seconds, that dog became the emotion of that container that they smelt, whatever that swab was, whether it was angry or whether happy under, under analysis and within seconds. And so your stress could actually potentially not only affect your dog's health, but shorten their lifespan. So that one for me was really big and a big driver for me to be a better person or at least do things that could relax me. How about you, Dr. Becker? For me, it was uh, the Dr. Tim Spector interview. He's the noted, quite famed microbiologist from King's College. He has done incredible studies. He's the man who published all the twin studies where humans that are genetically identical living very different lifestyles, how much lifestyle could impact health span and lifespan ultimately. When we interviewed him and asked him about the effect of eating ultra processed foods from birth till death, and we, I'll just back up and mention that veterinarians are the last remaining group of professionals that still advocate eating only ultra processed, highly refined foods. In fact, every veterinarian says only feed your pet pet food. Anything else could be dangerous. His recommendation, when I said, you know, as probably one of the world's top microbiologists and microbiome experts, what's your thoughts on eating on veterinarians recommending eating only ultra refined foods for a lifetime. His statement was, and I'm going to paraphrase because I can't quote him directly, but his paraphrase summary is, I can think of nothing more destructive to the overall health and wellness of any animal than eating entirely refined ultra processed foods from birth to death. It is the recipe for microbiome failure, which in turn is the recipe for immune system failure. And he said, there's nothing worse. The research is solid. It's the worst advice ever given. And of course, as a veterinarian, that speaks directly to my profession and my beloved colleagues colleagues who still wholeheartedly believe that the only thing we should be feeding animals are little brown crunchy balls. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, I've, I've heard from vets that, you know, a raw diet may be best for dogs, you know, organ meats included and bones ground and, you know, meats and things like that. And especially for cats as well, they're even more carnivorous than dogs. And I've seen reports of people trying to force their dogs to be vegans. And again, I'm sure most people just give them kibble only and i can't believe that that's good for them yeah exactly and i think as the world wakes up the entire better veterinary profession is going to be basically forced to re-examine our recommendations of a lifetime of fast food junk food for pets because is it impacting their longevity absolutely but i think more so even than longevity is how well animals are living in their bodies as they go through life. And with the incidence, with the epidemic of obesity and cancer and diabetes and heart and liver disease and kidney disease and autoimmune disease, and then the raging allergies we have in dogs, at some point, not just pet parents, but every veterinarian is going to have to stop and say, you know, there is a correlation to our recommendations surrounding food. There just has to be. In fact, Anna Hjelm Bjorkman, the, uh, the amazing veterinarian coming out of Helsinki, Helsinki, Finland, talks about the fact that what you nourish a pregnant mom has dramatic impact on the allergy expression of that entire litter. And so as these studies come out where 
study after study is showing less refined foods, fresher foods, gently cooked foods, foods that have not been high heat processed, raw diets, microbially balanced raw, but raw diets are all an amazing step in the right direction at intentionally improving health. Well, they actually did a comparison between raw food and dry food and sort of what affects the skin's gene expression, right? So if you've got an animal with allergies, which would be the best to feed, right? And seeing their results being published, raw food appeared to activate the skin's immune system and as well as the expression of genes that increase antioxidant production or have anti-inflammatory effects. So, I mean, it's it's the, with the new data and the new science and research that's coming out, it's awesome to see that scientists are, you know, with no funding. I mean, a lot of it is is citizen science projects and crowdfunding, but it's good to see somebody, you know, rooting for the little guy, fresh food uh, versus, you know, these ultra processed food diets and these big manufacturers that stand behind them with the, with, you know, with their resources. It can make it very challenging to run a study on the benefit of a carrot. Let's just say that. So it's really cool to see these studies. Well, I think it's funny that you know, a lot of people say, oh, science, science, double blind studies. And, you know, no one's done a study to prove that people need water to drink or food to eat to keep them alive. <laughs> yeah, there's no double blind placebo controls. And then another perspective is like, you know, if, if a person lives to 80 or a dog lives to 15, what's the only thing keeping that person or the dog alive for that long? Food, water, air. So yeah. how could those yep. things not be important? It makes no sense. Right. Yeah. And that's and, and that's and, and there lies the challenge. Right. I mean, it's really tough as as you're aware, especially as a, getting getting a scientist to say that A plus B equals C. Right. It, it's always tough. But I mean, there's common logic that's there. Right. Because Richard, only in our world, in the pet space, only part of the world, you talk to any human and they'll tell you, get all of that processed food out of your mouth. Stop shopping, you know, in those center aisles of the grocery store. Uh, start shopping on the outside where all those vegetables and produce and so on and so forth are there. That's common logic. Even a mother internally, her intuition, she knows that it's better to go in the refrigerator and pull out something fresh and, and feed it to her children. But in our space, in the pet space, for some reason, and I mean, I know marketing has a lot to do with it. Today's pet parent, the first time you get a pet, you're just, your intuition is to go reach for processed food. And your brain tells you, well, this is science and this may be safe. And when you go to reach for something fresh, you're scared. Well, is an animal toxic to this? Like if I give them an apple, will they get sick? You know, what am I doing? Only in the pet space do you second guess yourself when it comes to feeding your animal something fresh uh, versus the human space. In a way, it's funny. We feed our pets better than we feed ourselves sometimes. And then sometimes we feed them worse than we feed ourselves. I've, I've heard many times, I'm sure you have, don't give that to the dog. It's not good for them. When have you right. heard like, don't eat that ice cream, it's not good for you, you know, <laughs> versus. So it's it's just funny. I, I'm sure it goes both ways. It's weird. Well, marketing marketing plays a huge role in it, right? So like, t so marketers today, when you're going out to buy pet food, they're not marketing to your dog. Your dog can't read. They're marketing to you. And so they're looking for terms that, you know, that might lure you in. Terms, you know, like gluten-free or natural. natural or, you know, these cherries were picked way up in the Himalayan mountains off a of magical tree and we decided to put it in our bag of food and your dog's going to live a lot longer. But when you, you know, it, it, these claims are endless, right? And so for a pet parent, I get it. Food formulation is, is nobody's forte and it can be tough. And, you know, people, they don't want to miss out in, on, you know, on specific nutrients. And for us, we're always preaching, you know, balancing foods. 
But that being said, the flip side of it is when you look at all of these ingredients that you're technically shopping for, you're afraid to feed them. A lot of pet parents are afraid to feed them fresh, but when they're engulfed into a brown, small little cube, for some reason, it's deemed safe. I think it's like taking a pill. It just seems like a like someone's packaged it for you, and you just, you know, the marketers have told you it has everything you need. It's convenient. All you got to do is just dump this stuff out. It's these, you know, these pellets, they're not leaking. They're not, you know, messy. It's just, it just seems like um, that's the feeling I get. And I think that's why people do that. It's just like ultra convenience and it feels right for some strange reason. Yep, I think that that is exactly right. I think that between pet food companies the last 50 years saying, you know, never feed your dog anything besides X brand and veterinarians saying, you know, if you switch foods, your dog could get a GI upset. Between all of the food fears that have been exacerbated and highlighted in all the urban legends like don't feed your dog anything besides x brand of treats or x brand of treats will clean your teeth i mean we've we've heard all that that dry food cleans your dog's teeth or milk bone cleans your dog's teeth all of these absurd concepts like that's like me telling you eat granola it'll clean your teeth but pet parents have lived with these urban legends long enough that they actually believe them and unfortunately there's a little bit of veterinary reinforcement in there because veterinarians don't get a whole lot of nutrition training in veterinary school we get a semester maybe two but the truth is we are not necessarily well equipped to be able to help pet parents feed fresh whole living microbially diverse nutritionally complete foods we just aren't given those instructions in vet school so we end up not engaging in the conversation about species appropriate nutrition in the exam room and then that filters dogs down to dogs being not nourished at a level that can sustain long-term well-being unfortunately are you still active in your clinic uh, treating dogs or are you just researching i yeah, no, I, I sold my practice in 2013 and now I am an employee. Now I am, I, I still see patients on a part-time basis, but I am, I no longer am a practice owner because I'm dividing my time doing these types of things like writing books and lecturing and f- I actually formulating human grade fresh pet foods <laughs> is my new passion. I couldn't really find any on the market. So now I'm helping companies make better quality human grade species appropriate foods. And for me, yeah. If we can get better brands out on the market, that's a step in the right direction. Part, the number one question people say to both of us is, tell me what to feed my dog. And really, you know, you can make nutritionally complete fresh homemade meals at home. It's important you follow a recipe, but that's that's the best way to know what's going in your dog bowl is to, to make it yourself. But the truth is, just like making our own food, it's a pain. So until we get better quality f- brands on the market, people are saying, listen, I don't want to feed my dog crappy kibble for the rest of its life, but I don't know what else to do. So part of my professional goal is to provide a lot of options worldwide for pets to have better choices for for brands. Yeah, the reason why I ask if you're still practicing and you're seeing dogs is now when you look at them, I'm sure you see them with completely different eyes. And, you know, have you had a lot of experiences where you can observe dogs now knowing what you know? And how do you see them with different eyes or do you? Well, and keep in mind that I was, I started the first proactive animal hospital in the United States. So I, I opened my animal hospital already seeing things incredibly different. And so that's a, that's a, actually a whole different podcast in and of itself. But what I will tell you is from the, from meeting the researchers, these top tier Nobel prize winning researchers 
in accruing the data for the Forever Dog book. What I do have a different perspective on is the fact that, of course, there's a little bit of common sense, reduce toxins in your environment, keep your dog lean, feed less processed food, uh, minimize ex- you know chemical exposure. All of those things I was already doing in practice because my job as a proactive wellness vet is to partner with my clients to prevent disease from occurring. So that's nothing new. Does it extend life and health span? Absolutely. The difference, Richard, is now I have the ammunition of having the hard science to say, this isn't just common sense and a really great approach to avoid heartbreak early. Now I can say, here's the research backing my perspective that a clean, proactive lifestyle prevents disease from occurring and extends lifespan. So the different, there's really no difference in how I practice. The difference in is I have hard science to back up my perspective. And that's actually really invigorating as a doctor as well. Well, very good. What, what's the, so when does this book come out? I believe September. And where is it going to be available? What formats? Is there an audible format? Is there going to be oh, a visual yeah. component? Yeah, there's, well, from what I know now, it's, it's almost all, I don't know, no, there's no visual, but it's all, it's going to be an audio, hardcover, softcover, CD, I think, I believe. And, and it's, uh, it's pretty cool right now. It's, it's offered all over the nation. I know there's like large box stores that have picked it up. We're getting a little, it, it's, it's a little bit popular right now on the internet, they tell us. And, so. But also eight, it's published, not just of course in North America, it's published in eight different languages. So it's, so to answer your question, it's available worldwide. And in eight different languages. Yeah, so it's far. pretty cool to see all these uh, publishing houses reaching out and sending us incredible letters who uh, have been following us and watching our videos um, that are online that are like, hey, man, we really want this book. So to have it picked up in eight languages uh, is, is pretty cool. Well, very good, both of you. Thank you for coming on the podcast. What, In addition to the book, are there any resources you want to give listeners where they could find out more about your work? Well, I mean, so right now, currently, we're dumping a lot of stuff on the foreverdog.com, which would be the site of the book. Uh, but you can also find, you know, uh, myself at um, Planet Paws on Facebook, where I'm very active, where it's a lot of where my viral videos come out on. Um, there's also the website Planet Paws and Dr. Becker. So, um, yeah, of course, foreverdog.com would be the best place to go to learn more about the book and to learn more about me. I am at drkarenbecker.com. Very good. Well, both of you. Thank you for coming. It's been a good call, and uh, I can't wait to see the book, and I hope you have a lot of extra material with it. So thank you both. Thanks, Thanks so much. Thanks a lot. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.